0: back to On the Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is Jim Bryan, the owner of the Church of Satire Comedy Club in Hanover, Pennsylvania. Jim started doing stand-up in Long Island, then he moved to Las Vegas. He got married and wound up in Pennsylvania. After taking a break from stand-up, he got back into it in 2015 and formed the Den of Satire in 2017. Then he opened the church a couple years later. Everybody I've talked to raves about the Church of Satire Comedy Club. I'm really glad I got the story behind it. Also, I found out how much church pews really cost. This is a really good one, guys. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the podcast. If you like what you hear, sign up for the Patreon. It's five bucks a month. Also, follow Homebrewed Comedy on Facebook and go to homebrewedcomedy.com to see all of my show dates. Thanks so much I'll talk to you guys next week. Take
1: care.
0: Thank you so much for doing this, dude. I really appreciate it. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. What would you have been doing at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday, aside from this? Today, this Wednesday,
1: I'm starting to watch Discovery, Star Trek Discovery on uh, Paramount Plus, uh, mainly because I don't feel like watching Strange New Worlds week to week. So I'm going to watch Discovery. And then when I'm done, then I can binge on Strange New Worlds because I just wrapped up Picard.
0: So, (laughs) All right. So you're the guy I want to talk to. This is not why I asked you to do the podcast, but. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> believe it or not this is not a star trek podcast but i dated a woman for about a year and she was a huge star trek fan and i told her i would watch the show if she gave me like a starting point and I'm, yeah. I'm a completionist so i have to watch everything so i think it started in like what 64 something like that and i was like i will definitely start there she's like i don't know if you want to start there and i said so tell me where to start so i don't get lost along the way And she never did. And then I don't know that I would say that I have like a Ph.D. in this, but
1: uh, to my knowledge, I think the starting point, like on the timeline and somebody that's like a Trekkie is going to give me hate mail, probably. But whatever the one with Scott Bakula, I I think on the timeline, like that's where you start. Now, you go back with like, you know, Captain Kirk and shit back in the 60s. I think like in the Star Trek sort of timeline, that's not necessarily the beginning based on everything that's available for you to watch. I think a good spot to start are the the newer movies that came out, honestly, because they're like so good. Got Chris Pine and um, Spock is played by uh, oh, Balls. I can't remember, but they're like so action packed, man. They're so good. And like if you weren't into Star Trek, I feel like you would totally be into it after those movies.
0: Yeah, like, I like the Marvel stuff, and that's, like, I think that's, the like, my entryway into, I don't know, nerd culture. I mean, I don't know if it's nerd culture anymore. Mainstream culture now, dude. Yeah, I remember, like, I I fell asleep during X-Men 2 in the theater, and that wasn't an indictment on the movie. I think I was just tired, but I was like, all right, I saw that, and the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, and for a long time, I'm like, all right, that's all I need to watch. And then Mike's girlfriend was like, hey, can we watch the Marvel stuff? And I was like, yeah, I guess. And like there was enough humor in there to steer me along. And then I'm not an action guy, but like the action was good. And yeah. what impressed me a lot with the the Marvel stuff was like they're getting, I mean, every single A-list actor on there. Yeah, so, no
1: doubt, man. So my like, kids are like crazy for the Marvel stuff.
0: Yeah, like there's no way that can be like nerd culture anymore. Yeah, like every single a-lister is in those movies
1: it's like an awards ceremony with costumes and laser phaser beams and stuff my kids are bananas over a man like every single one of them they hang on every word like talk about marketing burying the hook into my <laughs> kids man like my kids swallowed the hook whole they're like waiting for the next movie to come out like the moment the trailer drops on youtube i don't know if they're all right for me man like uh I can't say that I'm like a huge Marvel fan. I definitely I like the Star Trek stuff better than the Marvel stuff. If I'm
0: being honest. Well, I've never seen Star Wars or Star Trek. And it's like, which nobody really believes, but like, it's, <laughs> it would take a little bit for me to like dip my toe into one of those. And yeah, War- I like them both.
1: I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not somebody that's like one over the other, you know, I think they're both cool. I, who, who doesn't, I mean, I like outer space. Outer space is, is cool, man, you know? scary it's cool all that shit so i'm cool with either one of them but i've been more into star trek lately mainly because of this paramount plus man is like it's, it's crazy great. it's amazing
0: watch are you afraid of the dark yeah Yo. uh, salute your shorts Doug. <laughs> i know man and and then, it's like and they've got every comedy special that comedy central ever produced and which is a lot so i, I think that might be it might be the most underrated streaming service out there Oh,
1: I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. Paramount Plus is incredible. It's my favorite one. And I have, I mean, I have a bunch of them because I don't have cable. I haven't had cable here in years. I have an antenna on my roof. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I agree. Paramount Plus is amazing.
0: Yeah. I think if you grew up in the 90s, like if you were a kid in like 1991, 93, something like that, that is for you because that's everything Nickelodeon, everything from MTV, everything from Comedy Central. And that's yeah, no back then. That's pretty much all I watched. Like you give me HBO Max with Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and I'm set.
1: Yeah. HBO Max is another good one, man. That winning time, that show about the Lakers. How was dynasty, that? Oh my God. That's one that I watched every week. Like normally I would wait so that I could binge it and I could watch two, three episodes a night, like this waiting for a week. like I don't even know how I functioned before this waiting a week to watch a show is like, I mean, Like, Jesus, you know, like, this is 2022, for God's sake. If I want to watch a whole season's worth of shows in three nights, damn it, that's what I'm going to do, you know? (laughs) Uh, But I watched it. I watched because I guess there were all kinds of stories come out about Like how Jerry West was like, oh, I'm so mad. I'm going to go to the Supreme Court about it. And I was like, you know what, man? He might, heaven forbid, they yank it, you know, and they pull it. I don't want to miss it because that's how good it was. It was amazing. It doesn't even matter if you're a basketball fan. It makes zero
0: difference whatsoever. It was so good, so entertaining, so creative. I used to be a journalist, and I always like when people overreact to a story that like Not a lot of people like it's niche. Not a lot of people have read it or seen it. And then Jerry West says, I'm going to sue. And you're like, huh, let's go watch the thing he doesn't want us to watch. Yeah, exactly.
1: How about it? Like, I would have never have watched them all in a row like that. So so I tuned in because there was an urgency to watch it because you never know. You never know, man. Like, for all you know, somebody would be like, oh, we don't want to upset You know, the logo of the NBA, that huge organization, blah, blah, blah. And then they yank it and pull it off. And I, I would have been furious because, like, you know, it was really good. I highly recommend it, man. And HBO, HBO is the best. HBO's like drama programming is a cut above everything else. I and mean, you go all the way back. You could go all the way back to like six feet under. You can go back, you know, to um, Sopranos. You could watch Boardwalk Empire. And then they got the new stuff like Righteous Gemstones. I mean, I watch I watch HBO Max all day. There's not enough time in the damn day to watch all this stuff.
0: I'm watching Sopranos for the first time now. Oh, so good. It really is. I'm up to like <laughs> season three, episode two. Uh, yeah, so a, good. A buddy of mine, Bill Russell, we're doing a podcast on that. And it's it's fun. I just wish we weren't doing the podcast so I can watch all of it right now.
1: I know, right? My biopsy. I think that show <laughs> is so good. I love it.
0: <laughs> I watched Oz not too long ago. And holy, have you ever seen it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And the thing that gets me is that there's a rape scene in the credits. And I was like, that show is fucked up. And I love it. I love every second of it. But I'm like the balls on HBO's and the producers of that show to say, you know what? We're going to show everybody exactly what you're going to see right in the credits.
1: Yeah, no holds barred, man. HBO's, I mean, HBO's, they're just better than the rest. I, mean, I don't really know how else to put it. You know, they get the best. I mean, i their, their writers are so good. The content is so good. Their like seasonal programming, episodic programming is 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 so exceptional. I was happy to pay for HBO Max. It was like a no brainer. It didn't even have like I met a lot of people signing for HBO Max because they were like, oh, you know, you'll die if you go to the movie theaters from the pandemic, so we're just going to release stuff right on this streaming service. And I know that's why a lot of people signed up for it, but I signed up because I was like, just I just knew all the access. I was I, I could spend the rest of my life watching some of these shows. So happy to get take my money.
0: Yeah, man, I have so many streaming services. Somebody asked me recently, which one is my favorite? And I couldn't couldn't tell him because I didn't know how many I had. Like, I'm like, oh, I I have Amazon Prime and I'm like, I use it for the packages. So I guess I have that. But I have Disney Plus for basically The Simpsons. I get these apps and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to watch two shows and I'm going to spend $10 a month to watch these two shows or to have access. So I get a service like HBO Max and I looked through it one day and I'm like, holy shit, they have everything I've ever wanted. Yeah, everything. And, and I just have to keep remembering that I have this and that these shows are on it. So I get my money's worth. Yeah. I'm very, I'm very cheap, but like I have ADD too. So it's a bad. I
1: mean, imagine a scenario. I mean, if you grew up in the 90s, you know, like we were more or less raised by the television set. Like we were, we're the first generation of folks that had access to, you know, more than you know, seven channels or whatever. (laughs) So when something, if you were to tell me, if you were to like come down, be beamed down and be like in the future, you're going to have like the ability to do what I could do all day. Like, I feel like I'm going to wind up mummified in my wing back um, (laughs) (laughs) with my hand on the remote control with like season 900 of Chicago Fire streaming on my television set like it's double-edged you know because you you want to like get out and get some fresh air but you're like oh my god like i i really 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 need to watch quantum leap again (laughs) it's just it's one of those things i don't know man i need to get like an alternating air cushion so i don't wind up with pressure sores watching this so much so
0: i like how you've gotten like two scott Bakula references and the first 10 minutes. Yeah, well, you know, and I
1: was thinking about, I, I oftentimes, like I think about Dean Stockwell for some weird reason, you know, because we lost him. You know, he died a while back, you know, and I remember when he died, it was like the first thing I was like, oh, my God, Ziggy, pew, 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 pew. Like pew, <laughs> my friends was texting each other, you know, um, he was a star at that show, not Scott Bakula, in my opinion. But do you ever watch It's Always Sunny? Yes, but I didn't quite get into it as much as everybody okay. else, man. I'm not sure why, but now I think I can stream it now. So, yeah, I I don't know who, you know, I'm pretty sure I can stream it now. So I I might take another go at it to where I can like if I can watch like episode, 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 if they can if they can hook me in three hours as opposed to three weeks, you know, I might get into it. My wife got really into it. She watched it.
0: I believe it's on Hulu. It's really, really good. But Scott Bakula, they bring him on. I want to say like season 12 or 13 and they do a quantum leap type story where oh gosh, he's, it's great. he's just like, uh, he's an orderly in a hospital. I think it's something like that. And they just do a nod to him and That's it's, it's like, you're like, wait, is it, is it? Cause they don't mention he's Scott Bakula, but you're like, yeah, <laughs> I know who that is. Mm. And then finally they, That's they do funny. a quantum leap thing for him. So it's really cool. That's funny. Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up on long Island, uh, okay. New York. I
1: went to, uh, like I was born in Vegas actually. But uh, I went from like first grade until graduating high school on Long Island. So
0: how'd you end up in the Hanover, Pennsylvania area?
1: After I graduated high school, I went out to Vegas. I went back to Vegas. You know, it was one of those like, you know, I'm gonna go see where I was born type of things. And like, obviously, I'm 18 years old. I'm in Las Vegas. I'm unsupervised. So it was like. It was Paradiso, you know, yeah. uh, it was. Uh, so I was there for a couple of years and I came home for another couple of years and then terrorists attacked New York City. And, you know, in like early, I think it was uh, it was probably like summer of 02, 2002. I was like, dude, the whole time I was like, I got to get off Long Island, man, like this place. So I felt very trapped. After 9 11, not not just me, like everybody did. Like most people after that, like just like with most collective trauma, people were like, oh, I'm going to do something big with my life. I was like, I need to get off this island because there's only two roads off this place. Like, get me out of here. I don't want to next time it happens, I don't want to get stuck here. So I just left. Like, I loaded up my van, I went cross country and I went for this like long, drawn out drive, like, you know, month or whatever. And Vegas is where I resettled. And when I went there, I got there in you know, sometime like late to like late 2002, whatever. And I just took up there. Like, you know, I'd started comedy in New York City and on Long Island. And I went to Vegas and I resumed like, you know, starting my comedy thing out in Vegas. And I was there for like years, whatever. Just so happened that my wife, she went out to Vegas on vacation and I bumped into her at a casino at like a you know at a mu- at a music venue, at a casino, we just sort of bumped into each other. We met. I lived there, she was on vacation, and it just kind of took off from there. She ended up moving out to Vegas to finish her master's degree or whatever. We got married and then like she's from the Hanover area. Gotcha. So that's how I wound up back here after we had our first kid and she got pregnant with the second one. We were like, well, I definitely don't want to raise a family in Las Vegas. Like this was fun, mm-hmm. but you know, I never even really had any expectations or plans for a family. I never even really looked that much far ahead, to be <laughs> honest with you. But when you get, I got to that point and I was like, I really can't see raising a family here. So what are our options? And Long Island's like crazy expensive. So it wasn't even really an option to start a family out there. And Hanover, this area, South Central PA is comparatively much more affordable. So that's where we came. We wound up here.
0: Yeah, I learned of Hanover because I dated a woman in Stewartstown, Pennsylvania, Okay, which, which I was told was the armpit of Hanover County. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if, that, if that's, the, or I'm sorry, of York County. Yeah,
1: I don't yeah. know, man. Uh, there's people in Pennsylvania that say that York County's an armpit, but like, I don't <laughs> know. I, I like living in York County. I don't have any problem with it, I guess. Uh, it is what it is. It's whatever you make of it, you know?
0: Well, when I first saw Stewartstown, it would have been like, 2003 it was like december 2003 there was nothing there she lived near like a bus station like for a school bus station and i'll give you the address if you want it but yeah. <laughs> actually i think i do know it but there was nothing there and then like the next year they'd put in strip malls right off the exit and it looked like an actual city so a buddy of mine who was from hanover that's who called it the armpit of of york county but i thought it was fine but yeah, I can't imagine it's very expensive to live because like I lived in Baltimore and Annapolis. And I know people like she lived in Stewartstown because it was just cheaper to live there and commute to Baltimore than to actually buy a place there.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are folks here that they'll be like, oh, prices are going through the roof, you know, everything's so expensive, rent's going up, this is going up. But I mean, that's happening fucking everywhere, you know. I mean, then you look at other places like Annapolis, for example, or even places not that far from here down into Maryland where it's we have a lot of people living in the Hanover area where they commute down to Baltimore and even further down into D.C. You know, we're talking one to two and a half hour commutes every day because the cost of living up here is is so much more agreeable. So and there's all kinds of neighborhoods popping up around here. You know, you get the old heads that are like, oh, you know, everything's going to shit. You know, it's there's new houses. that's like, what do you expect to happen? You think he's going to grow corn forever in a place like sooner or later they're going to people going to need houses. You know, you can't build a fucking house out of corn husks. So it's just like there's it's still country lifestyle. Where I live, it's even more because um, I'm like 15 minutes outside of Hanover. So, but um, like the downtown area is cool. The club, like where the club's located, it's really you know it's kind of in it's in it's enjoying this growth right now where the downtown main street Hanover, the main street USA has representation down here. So there's like investment, <clears throat> there's some investment happening in the storefronts and stuff. COVID really took a piss on it, but you know, I did that for everybody. It's not yeah. like Hanover's different than any other place. So we're kind of enjoying a little bit of uh I don't know. The the needle's moving in terms of like, you know, some cultural exposure and some different things like that. Like there's never really been anything like that here. So the younger population that lives here is is not moving out en masse the way that they used to, which is exactly what I
0: need. <laughs> when did you start doing stand up? Was that right 02. high school? 02? yeah okay. two,
1: 2002. I mean, I'd, I'd wanted to do it. I'd wanted to do it before I even realized I wanted to do it. You know, like I was infatuated with Saturday Night Live when I was little, but not so much the skits. I was infatuated with the monologues, like ever since I was little, before I even really realized what I was watching. I was so enamored with the monologues on Saturday Night Live. So I think that's probably what planted the seed. And then, you know, then I started like, you know, stealing records and shit, listening to prior and that type of thing. So I always knew I wanted to do it, but I just never had the balls to do it, I guess. You, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, eventually I just, you know, I I couldn't not do it. I was like, I have to try this, whatever, before, before I never try it. So it happened in uh, it was
0: like February of 2002. I think I started. And that was while you're still in Long Island, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I wonder if that made it easier to give it a try, just being that close to New York City.
1: Uh, I think so. Like maybe, I mean, keep in mind, like where I lived on Long Island, I was I was like 40, 50 miles east of New York City. Right. So like if people in New York City would consider where I grew up the country, right? And then they come to Hanover and they're like, oh, <laughs> oh <now> <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh so like my first time I ever did comedy, I did not do it at, in New York City. I did it at a club called Governors in Bohemia near near the Nassau Coliseum where the Islanders played. Uh, or I guess it's probably more popular for monster truck rallies than it was for that. But, <laughs> um, nevertheless, I mean, like I started out there and shortly after I was like, all right, I'm, this is amazing. Like this is everything that I thought it was going to be and more. I was immediately hooked, just like everybody. I'm sure you've heard this story a thousand times, some variation of it. Um, So I immediately went to New York City. I was like, how do I get into New York City? How do I become famous immediately? Let's let's accelerate this process. I've already waited three months. Like, how do we make this happen? (laughs) So I started going to New York City. And, you know, I had like a humbling experience where I was like, first of all, like it's kind of a hike, like I got to get on the train, you know, like there's a lot to happen. I get home really late. It's really easy to get drunk and expensive. And then you get to the whole thing where you're like, what do you mean? I only get three minutes like what, what? I just so like, you know, I had I went through the ringer for, you know, probably six months going like nonstop. I was in New York City, like almost nonstop you know, after I decided to get off Long Island officially, I was just like, all right, you know, I've had this New York City experience. I'll probably get famous somewhere else because I've had six months in New York City. And then this humbling experience just has followed me pretty much for the last 20 years all the way to Hanover. So
0: I know when I started, I had the same thought like, okay, I just need to go to New York City. And the kind of stupid part was, man, I'm not getting booked here. Why don't I go to New York city? I'll get booked there. Like what a a moron. But I I went down there. The first thing I needed to get used to was people doing their sets and leaving. And I was like, well, that doesn't happen in Binghamton very often. And (laughs) (laughs) I think I was signed up like 15th on the list at New York comedy club. And by the time I got up, I was telling jokes to the host and like three people. And I was like, Oh, I got it. I got it. And I was like frustrated at first. Then I went to the other mic and I saw most of the people there. I'm like, okay, I get it, but nobody told me what to expect. So when somebody says, Oh, yeah, I'm gonna go to New York City to get started, I'm like, that's that's gotta be a rough place. I would think Long Island would be a fun place to get started in comedy, probably not Manhattan.
1: Yeah, I liked I liked coming up in Vegas, honestly, to be honest with you. I was with some cool guys, you know, it wasn't it wasn't easy, but it's not easy anywhere. You know, like there is no easy scene because stand ups not easy. It's pretty unforgiving. You know, overall, I can't say that I and nobody told me what to expect when I got into it. Right. Because I didn't have any peers or friends that I started with, you know, like I was the only one of my friends that had any interest in doing this, you know, so I went when I was doing it, I was largely by myself going to bringers. But then after a while, my friends were like, dude, I don't want to do this, man. Like, like, you don't follow me to to my job to support me. Like, what is (laughs) happening here? Like, this is such a weird concept that we have to keep coming to watch you. Like, motherfucker, when are you going to get famous? Like, this is do I have to do this forever? And I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know the rules like maybe you do have to come to my shows forever because it was you know there's never there was never like an orientation program for this so eventually my friends like stopped coming and then my opportunities in in New York just they went away because yeah. everything was a bringer because you know I'd never graduated beyond that because there's always been a saturation of of performers in New York because there are people in fucking England who are thinking the same as you and I were like, let's just go, I got to go to New York city, you know? And you, you get there and you're like, wait a minute. Everybody in the world is here, you know, like, how am I? So, maybe I got a little disenfranchised, you know, because I was younger and it was probably stupid, whatever. I mean, it was stupid, but uh, I was also like really antsy. Like I wanted to go and explore the country and do fun stuff. So, you know, I did a little comedy in Chicago at a couple open mics and then we kept going I did some other ones in some other places and, When I got to Vegas, it was a young, it was kind of a growing scene. Some of the guys that I came up with down there in Vegas, like they've really gone on to do some pretty exciting things with their comedy careers. So, I'm, you know, I'm pretty stoked for them. Jealous as hell, but, you know, stoked (laughs) for them also. So, you know, I'm saying, and then when I left Vegas and came to PA, it was like in this area, there was nothing. There was nothing. It was over for me pretty much. I mean, I went to Baltimore a couple of times, but at that point I had three kids in diapers. There was just... It is what it is. I I had a hunker down. So I was out of comedy. I was out of the game for probably like six years plus while I was up here just working and building a career and raising a family with my wife. Uh, I didn't get back into it until like maybe 2015, 2016. And I probably stopped doing it in like 2007, 2008.
0: What inspired you to get back
1: into it? I never wanted to leave it. You know, I left it out of necessity because. Anyone, like if you got a, you know, if you're in a relationship with somebody that's not a comedian, it's super hard to impress upon them like how this works. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to be gone for four hours. I'm going to make nothing. I might eat. But they're going to make I'll drink for free. Like, that's what your wife wants to hear. Right. That you're going to like, listen, I'm going to go out. I'm going to tell dick jokes. I'm going to get nowhere, but I'm going to get hammered in the process. I'll be back around 2 a.m. Right. Like, that don't work, man. Like that, you know. So I was at a point where, I, you know, I, I don't know. I guess I kind of appreciated how. Unnatural that was for like a growing relationship and family when there were so many responsibilities that needed to be tended to at home. So I just you know I just put it away and there was a there, there was a while there where like honestly I don't even know that I thought about it. You know there were months that would go by where I'd never even think about it, but uh, I always kept writing jokes. Like I couldn't stop thinking in terms of beginning, middle, end, punchline. You know it was just it had been burned into my brain. So. I don't know. You figured 2000, maybe 2016, 2015. I had grown so tired of my work. You know, like I was, I was making good money, and I was like, man, I, I should be happier, man. Like, what's the deal? And I think I realized what the deal was. I, I wasn't doing something that I really would have preferred been doing. So I talked with my wife about it, and she was cool. She was like, yeah, I kind of knew this was coming, <laughs> right. you know, because she had met me before. Like when she met me, I was doing comedy full like almost full time, you know what I'm saying? Like every night I was going to mics and stuff. So, I think she'd been kind of waiting for it to happen eventually. So, she was cool with it and I just I just jumped right back into it.
0: Does she think you're funny? She
1: doesn't come to my shows very much. <laughs> Uh, she never has like she'll come like if i'm closing a weekend i, I gen- I'll, I'll close one weekend a year at the club yeah um otherwise i don't really perform at the club but she'll come for my weekend it's in february every year i do a weekend and she'll come but other than that not really she don't know <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i was just thinking like maybe if she thought you're funny she's like yeah you know what go out go out it's worth it but if you're not funny she's like maybe she's sick of you it's like Yeah, well, it could on, be
1: in the beginning. She would be like, have fun. And I'd be like, cut it with that passive aggressive shit, you know? <laughs> uh, but I think uh, I think at one point I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take her advice regardless. And like I really did. I started going out and I started having fun again with it where I wasn't worried so much about you know, where I was going to wind up with stand-up. I was older. I, You know, you could even make the case, that like, I'm in my 40s now. When I got into it, I was in my late 30s. I was, like, already kind of past my prime, maybe, uh, a little bit. Whereas like a lot of the people I came up with, they'd been doing it nonstop the whole time. They clearly had advanced farther. So I just concentrated on actually having fun, like making people laugh. And I started to get booked more as a result. I started getting booked for longer performances. And it was like before I knew it, I was getting invited to headline shows and that having fun made me a better comic, I think. Um, it made me enjoy telling my jokes more. It made me more present in what was happening. People enjoyed watching me more, I think, because I was like legitimately having fun. I was having a ball up there. I still do. I enjoy doing it now. I have fun telling jokes.
0: I think that's an underrated concept, like a like, you have to have fun. I remember when I started, which was about 2016. So there was like, it's a weird thing. Like, I think that was like a mini comedy boom. Like people got into it in 15 and 16 and 17 tons of people I talked to are like that. But when I started, I didn't want to laugh at anything I said. I wanted to be like stone-faced. I wanted to be like Stephen Wright and Demetri Martin, just like let the words carry everything. I did a show recently where I was having such a good time. People were laughing and I started laughing too. And I'm like, I was just in the moment. You could absolutely tell I was having a blast. And I think that resonated with the audience. We're like, Oh yeah, man. he's really happy to be here. We're happy to have him. It's kind of like a a very cool relationship at that point,
1: yeah, I mean, fun is fun is as contagious as misery. Misery loves company is the common common phrase, but fun likes company too, man. and um people want to be a part of that. They want to engage in that experience of like that guy's having fun. I mean, I've had other comedians that were like you you have more fun than than a lot of comics that I, that they watch you know and if comedians have a good time watching me that peer support is it is tremendous to me oh yeah i'm not even quite sure that i'm ready to say that i'd rather the audience like me than other comedians like me like if you know that peer support's very valuable to me um so if a comedian is like man you really have a good time man that's awesome like you have you have more fun than a lot of people we watch i enjoy watching you well hell man if you can make a comedian enjoy when they're usually not even listening they they want you to suck most of the time um that's meant that's meant a lot to me and it's really been just a matter of like me staying in my lane i don't watch a lot of stand-up i honestly have not consumed a great deal of stand-up since i Decided I wanted to be a stand up back in like the early 2000s. I'm not somebody that watches a lot of comedy specials. And it's not like I'm trying I'm not like, you know, elitist or anything. I'm impressionable. And I really do not want to even by accident pick up on something else that somebody else said. Right. Like, I just want to have my own little world and tell my shit about my life I don't want to sound like anybody else. Like I'm just worried. I've always been worried about that happening, like copying by mistake, you know? So I've been like really, I I don't know, I'm very insulated in that regard uh, when it comes to telling jokes. And I think that that's kind of helped me focus. I think I'm kind of unique in that regard that maybe I don't necessarily follow like a, you know, a standardized type of whatever. And it, I, I don't know, it kind of helps me, you know, that uniqueness is, I don't have a whole lot else going to get booked, you know, like I'm not avant-garde, no, but who the hell cares what I have to say about anything of any social impact right now. Um, my hot takes are pointless. So <laughs> I stay in my lane. I tell my stories about what my life is like right now. And so long as I just stay up here Things have been pretty good for me, you know. I mean, granted, I want to get booked more, but well, so, is so, does, so does everybody else, you know.
0: So, when you started back up again in Hanover, like, where did you go? Like, what do you have a home scene? Like, I would think Harrisburg or Baltimore.
1: Baltimore, probably. It was like a pick 'em,
0: right? Yeah. I'm about an hour
1: from Baltimore to the south, Harrisburg to the north. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, it really was Harrisburg has the one club. They got the comedy zone. And then Baltimore had the comedy factory and Magoobie's at the time. Right. So I was like, well, that place is two clubs. I had been when I when I visited here before I even moved here, I visited here and I went to an Orioles game at Camden Yards. Love and it. I kind of fell in love with Inner Harbor and Baltimore. It's like, I so was, easy to do. Yeah, it's such a cool city. So I think when I was like, all right, I'm getting back into comedy. I went to an open mic in York that I heard about on the radio. It was a hot mess. And I was like, oh, great. Comedy hasn't changed at all. That's exactly <laughs> how I left it. So I felt really comfortable. I was like, all right, it's cool. I can do this. Um, I was awkward and shook rust off, whatever. But then I was like, where am I going to go? Am I going to go to Harrisburg? Am I going to go to Baltimore? I went to Baltimore first and I met some really cool people down there. I really do like the Baltimore scene. It's changed. The Baltimore scene has changed in the last seven, eight years. But I think it's changing for the better overall. A lot of folks don't, you know, if they haven't been in multiple scenes, like I was in New York, Long Island, Vegas, Baltimore. I mean, they're kind of all the same. Like people are at each other's necks here and there's good folks and bad folks. But there's good folks and bad folks working at every Walmart in the country, too. So it's just it is what it is. You know, there's ups and downs and positives and negatives. But the Baltimore scene, I think, took me in. I was able to grow and develop down there in the Baltimore scene, and then graduated to producing my own shows up here because I kind of got tired of driving, honestly. So that's when I started kind of producing shows. That was probably like 2017, 2018, maybe I started producing shows.
0: What do you like most about producing the shows?
1: None of it. (laughs) Really? Uh, I mean, I used to, I'm a little tired. Like, you know, my my experience with producing shows now includes like utility bills. So Be it's calm. a little bit different, yeah. right? When I started producing shows here up in the Hanover area, I enjoyed the punk aspect yep. to it. I enjoyed loading up my Subaru with wood pallet stages and stereo equipment And like multiple people coming together. We were doing a late night Friday night show in a vape shop after they closed. So like, you know, we had lighting rigs that we put up everything like it was so punk that I fell in love with all of it. But, you know, as with most good things, they come to a conclusion, you know, like people are like, hey, how long are you guys going to be fucking doing shows in my Vape shop, like, you know, uh, like inherently like somebody pukes on a wall or something yeah. like that, you know, but um, I think that was my favorite part. Like, I just enjoyed the hang of it all. My whole production crew at the time, none of them was comics. Um, it was all friends and former coworkers, and, you know, guys, older guys like my age, too. And, you know, in their 40s or even a little older, like maybe somebody had a passion for photography, somebody had a passion for videography. Um, and we like pulled all this cool collection of people together to put on a really good show. And then the comics started coming, you know, to where that show, that show got super popular to where I would have 10, 12 Showcase comics coming up from Baltimore, coming down from Pittsburgh. Like people were coming from a ways to come and perform in a vape shop. I was like, this is crazy. So that was fun. I did enjoy that. It was a free show too. So like I didn't have no stress about selling tickets or anything like that. I was paying people in cheeseburgers and <laughs> Chick Fil A gift cards and stuff. You know. It was real. It was chill, man. It was cool. I did. I liked it. It was a big old party every single time.
0: I produce shows all over New York. And that DIY aspect is what drives me. And the fact that I can put all of my equipment in the trunk of my car and set up shop at a bar or or restaurant, uh, a hallway if I wanted to, a basement, and have a whole lot of fun. And just assemble three or four comedians from all over the state or Pennsylvania, wherever, and just come together and perform is, I don't know, you're right. There's something so punk rock about it and it's as close as I'm ever going to get to being in a punk rock band. You know, that's yeah. what I always want to do, but I had no, none of the talent or drive for music. You know, I just wanted to be part of that scene and Oh God, it's so, so much fun. I
1: know, it made me feel younger. You know, there was, something, there was something about it that made me feel like I hadn't grown up as much as I actually had. Right. Like I wasn't thinking about the electric bill when I was doing it. I wasn't thinking about the fact that, like, man, my back's going to hurt tomorrow (laughs) from picking up these speakers. You know, (laughs) I didn't think about any of it, man. Like it was just. It was an amazing experience, you know, for me, like I'm, I have, I have this like unending compulsion to move the chains down the field. So it was like, okay, what's next, right? Like it's time to get a club, um, which, you know, it wasn't, I can't even say that it was really a necessary thing that I had to do. It was just this constant thing that I'm putting on myself, whatever. But when, uh, when we got shut down a couple of years ago, whatever, over, over a uh, pandemic, uh, we moved the party outside in the summer and it was like reliving the whole punk atmosphere. We got to do it all over again. You know, we, we took the speakers off the walls at the club. We took all the cords. We loaded them right back into the back of the Subaru. We went out. And this time we went out into like a grassy field and I was like sledge hammering stakes in the ground for parking areas and stuff. And again, it was crazy labor intensive, I was a couple of years older, so I was even more sore in the back over it, but it was so like infusing with energy to do that again, that punk atmosphere of like, hey, there's nothing here, but now there's a comedy show. It was just, it's just such a cool thing to be a part of, you know? Yeah. Were you into punk rock? Uh, no, not particularly. <laughs> you know, I mean, I like, you know, like I listen to The Clash and stuff, right. but You know, I'm not, you know, in the Sex Pistols. I remember when I was in high school, like, you know, I listened to them, whatever. But like, I can't say that I'm like a huge punk rock aficionado, but I definitely can appreciate the allure of that lifestyle that that loaded up and rock it out lifestyle and then pack it up and get out of there before they give you a ticket. Like, I get it. It, It's fun, man. It was fun. I'm glad I did it because it really it catapulted. Not just the club itself, but like me as a comic, you know, it helped me as a comic grow. When did you form the Church of Satire? 2017, maybe. Okay. It started as a joke, man. Like we had this little cafe that they were letting us produce shows in and... The venue like wasn't having really great attendance, you know? And it was like, what can we do to get more people to come to comedy? Because if you're a comedy producer, like in your head, you're like, comedy's the best form of art. Like, don't waste your time on music nights. You should do comedy every night of the week. But in reality, the person's like, this guy's delusional, man. Like, <laughs> like you got five people showed up on Saturday. How are you gonna get people to show up on Tuesday? So For fun, like we were calling this little cafe our den of satire, right? Like it was, you know, it was like this fun little name we had for it. And I was like, yo, let's just call it Church of Satire, man, because there's so many church folks around here. Like maybe we can almost dupe people into coming with the name church. Like I don't go to church a lot, but like that shit is sold the hell out on like Sunday morning. Like that's a terrible time slot. And it's packed (laughs) every single week. Like how you get people to come Sunday at nine o'clock in the morning, like people turn up for this. So I was like, let's just call church a satire and see what happens. And I'm not even kidding you, Mike. Like within two weeks, we had three times as many people. I looked at my friends and I was like, I cannot believe that this worked. (laughs) you know. So then we just kept it. We just kept the name and we did it at the, at the vape show. We turned it into church of satire at the vape show. And then we took it to Gettysburg and did it at a winery. And we just kept having these like loaded shows with people like like not just comedians, but like actual people coming out. And I think it was just this peculiarity with the combination of church and satire in the name. I think people were just like, see what it's about, whatever it's free. And then that's when, you know, the guys started like, you know, they, we got a big old King size bed sheet and they drew a picture of my face and put church of satire on it. And that was like the beginning of the brand itself. And then from there it just, You know, you get to a point where you're like, all right, what's next? You know, like I'm a grown ass man. I can't be performing in front of a bed sheet with bugging stains on it. I got kids, you know? So, you know, you get to a point where it's like, what next? And then we waited and I waited. And then the what's next presented itself in the form of that very first cafe being vacant. And that's where we're at now.
0: That's awesome. So it just came full circle. Full circle. Was there any thought to, not buying that or was it just kind of like destiny?
1: Oh yeah. Cause I can remember even when it, even before we went there and it was just the place we were doing shows. You almost have to be there. And and I think the club's got a really good reputation among comedians, which is super important to me. And when you go there, when you're inside, you have stepped out of Hanover and into any major metropolitan city club that you're going to find in the country. It's ground level. It's small. It's low ceilings. It's pie shaped. It's concrete walls. The place rumbles when you get people in there. When you go outside on the sidewalk, that corner of York and Broadway is like it's very city like. Now and I'm not saying Hanover's a city. Like, don't get it twisted. But that one corner has a particular feel about it that I felt that the minute I got there, I was like, damn, man, this could be something you know, if the town would catch up, this could be something really exceptional. I just felt it from the moment, even when it wasn't mine, I just felt it. So when it, when I saw it was all boarded up and vacant and, you know, and, I made a couple phone calls. I was, I told my wife, I was like, I'm never gonna forgive myself if I don't take a shot at this. You know, I mean, you're born in Vegas and you lived in Vegas. Like I've got throwing dice in my veins, dude. And I was like, I've gotta try. What's the harm in trying? Like, and she was down for it. She was like, hell yeah, man, let's let's see what happens, you know? And within like a week of making a phone call, I was signing lease documents.
0: That's insane.
1: Yeah, it all happened really fast. It was like. While it was happening, I was like, dude, what am I getting myself into right now? <laughs> like, I don't even know what I'm doing. But I remember my wife was like, you've never known what you were doing when you took the next promotion. Like, every time you came home, you were like, I'm in way over my head. And it all worked out. So we just rolled with it, man. We just surfed the wave until I'm still surfing the wave right now.
0: I had Daryl Charles on. Love He's him. He's great. He's great. Is he somebody you met mm-hmm. while doing... Comedy in Baltimore or he just came?
1: Yeah, came. we crossed paths down yeah. there in that just DMV. We've been on shows together and like I've been on shows where he headlined, I think vice versa. And then I've had him up to the club. Um, I've got him on the schedule. I think I've got him on the schedule, to headline in October. He's going to run his own weekend. He's amazing.
0: Yeah. It, but he was talking about how awesome it felt to be inside of there. just You've got pews in there, right? Mm-hmm. Why do yeah. I mean, obviously the church, but like, How do you get them?
1: Well, it's funny, man. As usual, I get into shit, man. I don't know how this happens sometimes. But when I opened the, when I got the place, uh, a gentleman from the Harrisburg area, he had seen me perform one time. He was getting into comedy, but he was also a set designer. Like he designed play sets like uh, for theater productions, right? And, um, you know, he worked for he works for a, a sign making company, very creative His names, Craig Paul, funny dude, too. But he had seen me perform. And when he saw that I was opening up a club, he was like, he he was into the concept of somebody that he was like, that's a funny comedian, who also owns a club, like that's kind of a a unique property where yeah. somebody who you know is, is really funny or actually funny i don't want to say how i'm really funny that sounds fucking pompous but um he was like you know here's a guy that's actually funny he's opening a club so he contacted me i didn't even know him and he contacted me and he was like hey man i'd like to come down maybe design your club and i was like well that's cool because i don't know what the fuck i'm doing so come on down and when he came down i was like listen i want a brick wall and he was like you're fired already so i was like all right well listen I want pews. I got my hands on half a dozen pews. And he was like, Where in the hell did you get those? And I was like, Never you mind. <laughs> but just design the club around the pews. So uh, he essentially drew me three choices. And I chose the one that we have now as if it were out of a catalog. I got the pews because when we did it, I told my wife, I was like, You know what? Ask the pastor at church if he's got any spare pews. And she was like, What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're you just know? around. I was like, dude, just go ask him. And she was like, all right, whatever. You know, this is the woman who like I told her I I made her ask the vet to give her the dog's teeth after they were pulled out. Right. So like she's gotten used to living with me. (laughs) So she went there and she asked him, she was like, do you have any spare pews? (laughs) And he was like, yes, actually, we have a bunch downstairs we're trying to get rid of. And I was like, no way. So I went to him and I was like, listen, man, like, I'm going to need your blessing here because like people are going to say really, really bad things in front of these pews. Like people may (laughs) even say people might even say shit about Jesus in front of these pews. In fact, they probably are going to say things like, can I just get a what? What? Like, are we cool? (laughs) If that happens, like I need to know, like in my quasi faithful, committed religious self, like I don't want to have like a heart attack the first time somebody makes fun of Jesus. Like, could I get the pass from a man of the cloth? And then he was like, well, are people going to be coming together and having a good time and experiencing joy? And I was like, oh, my gosh, absolutely. And he was like, thumbs up for me. So <laughs> a friend of mine had a big old giant uh, tractor trailer, like a flatbed. We loaded a half a dozen pews onto the flatbed. And then when we started loading, the, we parked right on Broadway and started loading pews into this place, man. People were like outside their apartments, like, what is going on in that old cafe? Some crazy pastor's opening a church. There's a church right down the road, you know? So like the other church was like, who's moving down, taking our tithes? That type of thing. It was so funny. And then, uh, you know, so they went in there and then he designed the club. And from there, it just, you know what I'm saying? It just kind of took off, I guess. Are
0: you a parishioner at that church now?
1: Like, what do did you go, mean? Do you go every week? To the church that we got the pews from? Yeah. Nah, man. <laughs> yeah. I, would
0: think, I would think that's a social contract you actually nah. signed.
1: No, my kids have been baptized in that church. So I feel like, I mean, am I using my children as currency in the church? Perhaps Uh, (laughs) my wife was raised in that church. you, You know, I wasn't raised religious. It's just, you know, I think that if you're not raised religious, you grow up with a different appreciation of church and religion. And my wife has always been really understanding about that. So, you know, I'm your I'm your casual Christian. Christmas, Easter, and all my kids are baptized. So like now I just I'll drive them to confirmation class and stuff. But, uh, you you know,
0: you've done your part.
1: I mean, honestly, dude, making people laugh. They're sitting in church pews like that's got to be good for something.
0: (laughs) Maybe they'll sit there at a comedy show and, and realize, man, you know what? I miss these seats. What a, yeah, what, Can I do this this weekend too? They were Can't like, this way. is my
1: spot. Like, I feel the presence in this spot yet again, whatever. I don't know how it works. Let me tell you, I've had some old folks, man, like old folks have come to the club, you know, and where me and my wife are like, oh, my God, this is going to be, this is going to be rough. You know, like that person's 88 years old. I don't think they curse. And they dude, They come in. They have so much fun. Like they've never experienced, there's never been a comedy club in Hanover. This place has been here. yeah. Yeah. Like this place has been here since muskets was being fired and there's never been a comedy club here. So people are experiencing this, this form of performance art for like the very first time. And for the most part, they're getting as addicted to it as we all did when we started doing comedy. We have serious fans. It's really fun.
0: Has it been easy to book? I mean, it's so unique. Comedian? You mean? Yeah. Well, the challenge
1: is really being able to compensate them what I believe would be fair, because I can't. You know, I only have 49. I have 46 seats. I can accommodate 49. But we've given up a couple of seats to make for our video recording that we do in-house. Cause we've got we've got really nice 4Ks mounted throughout the club so we have given up a couple of seats so i can seat 46 comfortably i can't charge too much because this is blue collar stuff man like people aren't really gonna be like oh 35 40 dollars for a seat so I, i'm selling 20 bucks online is about as high as i can go i do 25 at the door and people gripe man like people are like eh 25 so i mean do the math yeah there's only so much i can make and it's hard to bring in some talent and make it worth their while you know i don't have a liquor license because in pennsylvania it's impossible i don't have a restaurant here so you know there's there's limited ways for us to make money besides selling tickets and selling club merchandise so that's really been the major hang up has been like you know I've, i can't really offer what some of these folks deserve or are accustomed to making Uh, I do believe what I make up for in those two areas is an experience and appreciation for the performer that not a lot of clubs can match. And I think that when you talk to people who have done the club, I think that's the vibe that they probably communicate is that, you know, there's just something kind of special about the environment when you're there and they come away from it feeling valued and validated and appreciated as performers and maybe not so much just viewed as somebody i'm cutting a check to so that they can occupy the time so that i can sell drinks and sell chicken fingers
0: right now maybe i'm thinking of somebody else but do you buy dinner for the comedians afterwards like a lot of pizzas coming town. oh cook cook that's what it is okay um
1: so like we we do have we um we have a local pizza place divino's pizzeria and grill and the guy Jason that owns it is amazing. Like his pizza is really great. It's super creative. He's got these like incredible, like Big Mac pizza. Right. Uh, so we were doing that like every weekend. But like I was like, I'm going to die of a heart attack. I'm not going to I'm <laughs> not, like I can't just keep eating pizza. And then we had to cut costs, especially post pandemic. Like I was like, we've got to come up with a way to stay open and you know, even though we have a nice arrangement with Davino, we had to cut costs every single place we could. So then we started doing burgers and hot dogs outside on the barbecue in the parking lot. And it created this whole other atmosphere uh, where like comedians would go and do their set and then they'd come out and we would be like grilling. And, you know, we just have this real sort of fellowship, Feasting thing—that's always been well. That's one of my favorite parts of the of the whole weekend experience—is all of us kind of like chowing down and eating afterwards and hanging out. And we've even like last weekend we actually got the griddle inside because we had this like biblical rain. So last weekend we did pancakes, and I was like, "Whoa, dude, that cost like three dollars, dude! <laughs> we should really <laughs> we should consider pancakes more often." Uh, but everybody loved it. Everybody was like, "Pancakes." You know, Uh, and then the the night after we did egg sandwiches and stuff. So the grub is a big part of the weekend, I think, for everybody.
0: It feels like a comedy festival. Yeah. You're going to do your time and then you're going to hang out, eat. I mean, it seems like a party. And especially if you're there Friday and Saturday, it sounds awesome.
1: Yeah, man. I mean, we used to have an apartment hookup across the street. For comedians to stay. Unfortunately, when COVID came, you know, like the person was like, hey, man, like I got to rent this apartment. Like it doesn't look like this is going to end anytime soon. And that person was right. We were closed for longer than we had been open up until that point. Like it was over 450 days or some shit. So we lost the apartment. But now it's like most of the time comedians will grab an Airbnb. Or something or maybe they'll find a hotel nearby Uh, i will offer up like hey if you want to crash on the couch that's fine but like be advised i'm probably going to be back first thing in the morning like teaching a class on zoom so you know you might get in so uh, for the most part i'd say it's pretty seldom that they crash on the couch but uh lodging here in town is not prohibitively expensive you know and now that we got the the cameras hooked up like people are walking out of here if they have a great spot. We've got a beautiful backdrop. I believe our club is probably as nice looking a club as you're going to find. It looks great on camera. So people are leaving with promotional materials, which is in of itself kind of currency nowadays with TikTok and Instagram reels and those type of things. So everybody's like, oh, let me get the video. Let me get the video. So that's another that we've started doing after the pandemic was uh, we really invested in our in-house production capabilities
0: one of my favorite parts about watching what you guys do is that i think it's lost on a lot of people especially like audience members but what's the logic for you to book a host a separate host for each night most clubs i work for or i've seen they carry the same host on a friday and a saturday for four shows but it seems like you almost always have a different one on friday and saturday It's about
1: opportunity. Okay. Um, You know, uh, it's not so much about like giving the audience diversity because, you know, the folks who come on Saturday, they they didn't, they weren't there on Friday. Right. But uh, it's about opportunity. It's about putting local comedians with less experience into the green room and into the show with a seasoned headliner so that we can be part of developing more comedians. Like when I was coming up as a comic and a lot of people that I know in their early days of coming up, they just felt like opportunities just weren't there, you know? And I'm not saying that church of satire is like your Avenue to fame and fortune, whatever, but there's been literally countless opportunities granted to folks who they made a connection on their weekend or on their night with a touring headliner. And it has created opportunities for them down the road with that person. So that's the main thinking process, not just with the host, but with the guest. Right. And even sometimes with the feature, that we're gonna try and we're gonna try and bring as much talent as we can through the club so that first of all, we can bury our own hook into people you know like we're confident that we're going to provide an experience that's so unique that it's going to be difficult to compare to other places the more people who have that experience the more people that are going to go back to their comedy scenes and talk it up the other advantage to it is that like i really do want to be a part in developing more comedians and giving comedians more opportunities like that that gives me a great deal of joy and purpose. I have to be honest with you. You know, like advancing other people is something that I've always taken pride in. Even when I was a manager in healthcare, advancing other people has been something that's important to me. So I think that's my mainly my 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 primary logic with having uh, different people in those roles on the same weekend.
0: I also think like if you have, um, they know each other very well. If you have Michael Donald hosting on Friday and Manny Santiago hosting on Saturday, you also get a look at both of those guys to say, hey, maybe they can feature for Daryl Charles in October.
1: It's funny you mentioned Manny and Mike because I love both of them. Yeah. And Manny and Mike in July are going to co-headline a weekend. Really? So (laughs) Manny's going to headline Friday and Mike's going to feature. And then the next day, Mike's going to headline and Manny's going to feature. That's crazy. Yeah, I love both of them. I've done a ton of work with those guys, you know, because we, I still like I'll still branch out. We'll do a fundraiser here and there. You know, we'll go to a fire hall and uh, the place will be jam packed with people. And uh, when I have gigs like that, Manny and Mike have been kind of my go to's for a couple of years now. Two great guys. Love working with them.
0: They're great. I've had Mike on the podcast. I just had Manny on it. They're fantastic. And Mm -hmm. I've heard nothing but good things from them. And which if you're around the area long enough, you're on any comedy scene, you hear a lot of negativity about just about anybody. But (laughs) those guys are pretty solid.
1: Yeah, they're good, man. They're good. They're funny. Like, all right, let's let's cut everything out of it. Yeah. And look at it from just the comedy aspect, because, you know, if, if we were to base this on just who the good people are, then I might have some open spots, you know, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, and, uh, and I like both of them as people. I can hang with them, but they're both very, very funny. They're very talented comedians, you, you know. So I was excited to give them their headline opportunities at the club. Like, you know, and they've headlined places before. But, you know, I was happy to give them the club. I think that Hanover is going to enjoy that weekend. I'm very excited for that weekend, actually. Which weekend is that? It's July 15th and 16th.
0: That's outstanding. I have not booked either of them yet, but I will. But yeah, like Hammond. I said, like I, I work with Zach Hammond a lot.
1: Yeah, I know Zach. Zach's headline. Yeah. Zach actually was the last show before the pandemic. Oh, really?
0: hmm Did you blame him for it? Yeah, it was all his fault. He licked I, every doorknob. Yep, yep. Trust <laughs> me, I've worked with him. I've seen what he does. It's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I lo- I like Zach.
1: Zach's funny, man. He's 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 got a dark edge to him. I appreciate that.
0: It's funny working with him because we just did a show in really North New York and Zach can go in front of a room full of older people. And I'm like, oh shit, what are we going to do? What am I going to do? They, they're not going to like my stuff. Zach's like, fuck it. Who cares? And he goes, and oh, yeah. he has no fear with what he's doing. And I've told him for years, one of my favorite things about watching it, one of my favorite aspects of his set, his material is that he can lose a room and then get them right back. And I like watching him play with that yo-yo.
1: I think honestly, I there are times where I've seen Zach where I'm like, this motherfucker's losing a room on purpose. I think he gets off on it. It's like a sadist, yes. you yeah. know? And then the the skill in getting it back, I think is a great deal of payoff for Zach. If you were to ask him, I, I bet I bet he enjoys that roping him back in after he's like made them really question his humanity. Uh <laughs> <laughs> He's a lot of fun. I got a lot of respect for him. And he's great backstage, right? He's a solid person. He's a respectable human being. Uh, He treats the club with a great deal of respect and dignity, which means a lot to me. Not everybody that comes through vibes on what I love about my place, you know, like there are people who, you know, they'll see that it's small, and they'll see that the pay isn't great. And they'll see that, you know, I'm, I don't have a food menu and I just made pancakes and like pancakes. What is this guy? You know, like there are some folks who and again, people are allowed to have their opinions, whatever. But when somebody comes in and really picks up what I'm putting down and respects my squad and, you know, that means a lot to me. And I remember that. I hold that in high regard, you know, and Zach's one of those folks.
0: Yeah. He told me one time, he's like, whatever you do, whatever you offer me. I'll do it. And I'm like, I'll remember that because it meant a lot, especially when I was starting booking. I had like him and a guy, Paul Kozlowski, who were like, yeah, I like your hustle. So we believe in you. And holy shit, does that matter? I mean, yeah, yeah, I know you're, that's right. Yeah, you're, you're low at times. You're like, oh, no, I still have these hammers who are still going to fight for me.
1: Dude, I just—I got a guy coming this weekend. Mike Leibovitz. He's been on Last Comic Standing. He's been on HBO. He's been on Comedy Central. He just recently, in the last couple of years, won this Carnival Cruise contest uh, for a contract with Carnival Cruise Lines, where he was on like a reality TV show where like James Vanderbeek was the host. <laughs> like this, you know, this guy's got like you know, after he's done with us this weekend, he's out to Chicago to headline Zanies. So there's no logical reason for this guy to want to party with us. Right. But he absolutely appreciates all of some of those finer points that we appreciate. And I'm gonna pay him as much as I can possibly afford without like taking food off of my kids' plates. And he knows that. And like, you know, it's just those types of things, like they do come up. There's been some people who have performed in Hanover. That given what my resources are, there's no real logical explanation for why they were here, except that they love comedy and so do we.
0: Yeah. Do you ever find yourself being afraid to ask somebody to do a show for that Mm -hmm. budget? Like That's my biggest problem right now. Yep.
1: I I, I don't know that that'll ever go away, but uh, I'm a lot more comfortable just being like, listen, here's the deal. You can say no. And it's cool. Like if I'm ever in a position to pay more. Hopefully, you still consider me as an option. But this is what I can do now. Right. And that's why I've added all the extra stuff by being like, if you want to crash here, you can crash here. I'll give you a video. It's going to be really good video. I'll actually send it to you, you know, even though like <laughs> I'm, I'm so far behind. Right. But But, uh, you know, I spend a lot of my own time, like just last night and this morning, I was cutting videos from the open mic. I still have headliners I have to get their videos for. Like I put I make it a priority to get this stuff to people. You know, I add all these extra amenities as like ways to be like, you know, I also do this for you. And some of them have been like, nah, no good. I'm not interested. And you know, and others, I mean, I got to the point where I don't really have to contact anybody anymore. I have a problem getting back to everybody. Right. Is where I'm at now. But in the beginning, when we first opened, I was yes, terrified to insult people yep. by offering them not enough money. You know, I've, so
0: I've had people ask, like, like I've heard from other people like, Well, do you not like him? Because he doesn't know why you're not booking him. I'm like, well, because in my mind, I can't pay him enough to justify four hour four yeah. hours in the car. Like no, and then go back. Like like I'm thinking about his bottom line, mm-hmm. and a lot of times people don't care. But I'm like, no, but I do. Like I don't. Just want keep
1: to- that, you keep that mindset, and, yeah. and and it'll serve you well. People appreciate that. You never know. Like some of them might, you know, like particularly with the New York City comedians. So many of them have TV credits. But what they don't have are opportunities to do 25, 35, 45 minutes. It's crazy. Like they're going up. These are people with TV credits that are fighting tooth and nail for five minute spots, you know, and as comedians, we all need to stretch our legs to like see if we can connect those five-minute spots to our 10-minute spots, make those 10-minute spots into a 20-minute spot, take our 20-minute spots and combine them with other 10 and 20-minute spots as we ultimately work our way towards 45 to 60 minutes. I mean, that's the standard, right? Um, 60 minutes for me is like a pitcher pitching a complete game. And you have to... You got to pitch five before you can pitch six. You got to pitch six before you can pitch seven. And, you know, sometimes when you offer this to comedians in New York City and you think they're going to turn you down, what they're really looking for is some place that's going to give them an opportunity to do 45 to 60 minutes and they're going to put a crowd in front of them. Right. I can do that. Right. I mean, not every time the crowd part's been kind of hard from time to time, but I'm going to bust my ass creating that environment for people. And if they say yes to what I'm offering, then I'm not going to feel bad anymore. You know, I mean, if they say no, I'm going to feel shitty and a little embarrassed and hope that my reputation doesn't get smeared because I don't have a lot of funds to a lot of resources to work with. But if they say yes, I'm not going to feel bad like they said yes. And if I if I do great at the door, I always offer to bonus them and if i do shitty at the door and i wind up losing money it's too bad it's my fault they get paid what i said they was going to get paid every time so i offer them a guarantee with a bonus if we sell out and if i don't make enough to turn a profit i'm the businessman it's my that's my cross to bear so to speak they'll get paid what i said i was going to pay them
0: that's incredibly important and that's mm-hmm. that's how i've been able to book the people i book routinely it's like yeah. because i offer a guarantee with an incentive if we sell enough tickets and then we do tips too. So I'm like, you're always going to walk away with more than I promised you. Like that's the guarantee.
1: Yeah. They might walk away with a t-shirt extra, but I can't guarantee they're always going to walk away with more. Right. We're uh, going to get fed. But uh, yeah, I'm going to take care of you, man. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to mm-hmm. treat with respect provided you're not a total asshole. And uh, you're probably going to want to come back afterwards, you know, and and the reputation that we have goes a long way, too, because, you know, if people will come to me and, and they'll be like, hey, my so-and-so told me all about this club. And, and I'll be like, all right, here's the breakdown, you know, and they were like, oh, they told me about the breakdown. It's cool. Like, I'm down, you know, like I'm they heard good things, whatever. You took care of people. So, you know, at this point. I'm a little bit more secure, you know, in my fact, in the fact that I can't pay that much. Sometimes I get frustrated, you know, because it's like I want to bring in a big name, but I just,
0: you know, like I I can't sell my car (laughs) in a big name, you know. Do you remember the worst set you've ever had as a comedian or the worst show? My worst show? Yeah.
1: I still maintain that the worst shows for me are the ones where as a promoter, I don't sell enough tickets and the comedian on stage doesn't have an audience. They're the worst. However, I have had my own like I've never been slapped or no shit like that. But (laughs) I've had ones where like I was, you know, me and a few of the people on the show were like the only people in the room except for one or two attendees and a bartender. And uh, I can remember one where like the room was literally empty except for two people sitting in the front row. So I was like I felt like I was doing I almost felt like I was doing like a management where I was like about to fire somebody or some shit. Uh, And uh, they were like, all right, so you're going to do like 45. And I was like, no, no, I'm not doing 45 minutes for these two. Like, are you nuts? Like, that's insane. That's like holding people hostage. And the show started late also. So like I ended up doing maybe like 20 minutes, right? Because that's all that was left in the allotted amount of time. And it was brutal, right? So I actually, at the end of the show, I asked the lady, in the front, I was like, ma'am, do you have a phone on you, perhaps? And she, like, took her phone out. And I was like, you know, what time it do you have on your phone? And she told me what time it was. And I was like, OK. I said, does your phone, you got one of them phones with a flashlight on it? She was like, yeah, I got a flashlight. And I was like, get the fuck out of here, really? I said, turn that flashlight on. Let me see that thing. And she was like, she turned it on. And I was like, can you hold that sucker up? Like, hold it up. And she held it up. And I was like, all right, folks, that's my time. <laughs> 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 and I've wound up doing that shit so many times afterwards. But that was the first time I did it. And it was so funny, man. The host was like, what the fuck? What are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, dude, look around. Like, they, the, the staff is sweeping like, let's get out of here. But uh, that was one of the worst. You know, I always try to make the best out of a bad situation. I think I did that time, but like that was rough. But um, honestly, for somebody like me, I feel genuinely blessed to be able to do this, to make any money doing this at all. So I don't you know, I don't have a lot of miserable gigs. I'm not doing five, seven mics a week where I'm like amassing this huge reservoir of positives and negatives, you know. So like I try and do my best to you know, try and find some silver lining with some of these shows. But that that one ranks up there. That was rough. There was like literally four people in the room. And, you know, there was five people in the room and three of them were on the show. That was a rough one.
0: I've never heard of somebody asking the audience for a light. Oh, dude, I might be the only one. It was so funny,
1: It was so funny. She was like, yeah, I got a flashlight. And I was like, hold that fucker up. And she held it up. And I was like, that's my time. <laughs> 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 yeah, it was funny. It was yeah. good. I that one.
0: This has been fantastic. And I see everything you're doing. And I hear everything. I'm, I'm glad I got the story of the church. Because I just, especially the pews, man. I didn't understand how anybody. I've never heard of somebody <laughs> buying pews. Or, man, I got them for like, free. I hope you put something in the collection plate.
1: Well, we actually have baskets, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but we do those at open mic only because open mic only, open mic's a free night. So we do. We walk around. I wear masks. I had a John Cena mask the one day uh, and I'd be walking around. We always wear Halloween masks and shake baskets at folks and stuff. Our open mic on Monday is packed with people, not just comedians. It is packed every Monday.
0: What do you think it is? I mean, does Hanover just need that? Yeah, it's like there's a crew of people from the breweries.
1: Hanover's got like three breweries right downtown. And Monday night just seems to be a night where like everybody's looking for something to do. And the fact that it's free, we get like this recurring 10 to 12 people that show up. Then there's always a few extra that show up. And then 10 to 12 comics every week. Like there's 25, 30 people in our showroom that are just feasting on comedy on open mic. And, and it's uh it's a circus, man.
0: I host an open mic on Monday. And if we get eight comedians, I throw a party, you know? And like, then you don't even think about the audience. I mean, we get a handful and I'm happy. Yeah,
1: Ours is ridiculous. And I don't have anything to do with it. I hang out in the back and like edit videos and watch Paramount Plus in the green room. And then they just text me when it's time to come shake baskets. That's run by Darnell Fuson and Tom Nutty. And those two guys have embraced this whole wrestling culture. It's called Open Mic Nitro. It's really phenomenal. So that's great.
0: Well, I'll let you go, man. You know, I don't want. Yeah, that's I cool, to man.
1: Actually, I, I actually I got to run to the club right now. I'm oh, actually on cool. my way out the door.
0: That worked out. You want to plug anything? I mean, social media. And it's just, you know, everybody that's listening, you
1: know, I mean, you can follow me on social media, just follow my name, you know, uh, uh, Instagram, Jim tells jokes, TikTok, it's the sole proprietor, but uh, mainly like the club, just follow Church of Satire Comedy Club. And if you're in the area, like we really, we have exceptional weekends happening all the time. And then uh, for you, reach out to me on the slip on the side, we'll get you to come down, we'll get you a spot, we'll get you working.
0: Sweet. And that's the only reason I asked you to do this podcast anyway. So it worked out. Of
1: course, man. I heard you book book shows. That's why I'm here.
0: (laughs) This is how connections are made.
1: Yeah. We're the most (laughs) self-serving people in the world. No kidding. Yeah. All (laughs) right, brother. Listen, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. I appreciate you. And uh, have a great day, man. Take care, buddy.
1: my skin. outside your I hope they let me in.